Awesome. Uh, welcome again. Thank you for uh, joining us this morning. And uh, this is our last Sunday before Christmas, and so we're going to look at the Christmas story today. Uh, just a reminder, um, we're going to be streaming our Christmas Eve service, Christmas Eve at 7 o'clock, and so you can join us online for that. Also, just a big shout out for all of those, uh, those of you who helped with our hampers this year. We got a number of hampers out uh, and uh, really, really blessed some families, and always thank you to Rhonda for um, just really organizing all of that, and thank you to the Dam Inn as well for partnering again with us this year. Uh, so we're going to be looking at the Christmas story. Again, this is uh, last Sunday before Christmas, and I guess we better do something Christmas-oriented. So um, we're going to look at the Christmas story, and it begins in Luke chapter 2. It says, in those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to their own town to register. And so we see Quirinius's name here, and Caesar, and we know that during this time, King Herod existed. And so using those names and the associations, we, we uh, scholars date the birth of Christ at 5 or 6 B.C. And so Jesus was probably born around 5 or 6 B.C. He wasn't born at zero because there's no such thing as zero. Uh, but we have a big name. The very first verse of the Christmas story, the very first name in the Christmas story is Caesar Augustus. And Caesar Augustus was, would, would have been the most well-known person in the world. Uh, he was the leader of the Roman Empire. He was supreme. He was powerful. And it's interesting to note, especially uh, in light of the Christmas story, it's important to realize that Caesar had a lot of other names. Uh, it was very common for Caesar to be described as God. He was described as Son of God. He was described as Savior. He was described as Lord. He was described as the one who ended war and brought peace. And we may be familiar with a lot of those themes, but that's, that's Caesar. That's how he was known. That's how he was worshipped. That's how he was revered as God, as the Son of God, as Savior, the one who brought in peace, even though it was through violence and, and might. In fact, we have uh, an ancient document, uh, an ancient calendar in inscription about Caesar, and it says this. It says, the birthday of the god Augustus was the beginning of the good news for the world. And that good news is, is literally the gospel. That's what that word means. Gospel means good news, that Caesar Augustus was the good news. He was Savior. He was Son of God. He was God. That's how Caesar Augustus was seen. And that's the beginning of Luke in his Christmas story in Luke chapter 2 uh, is talking about Caesar, and this is important for the rest of the story. And then the next name, a uh, major name in our story is Joseph. So he's our Caesar, who is the most well-known name in the empire, and then there's Joseph, whom really nobody would have known, maybe just a few people. He was just a, a lonely little carpenter, and, uh, and yet there's something very significant about him. It says, so Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, and, and Nazareth was, was where he was living, and it was kind of a nobody town. 
And uh, it says he goes up, uh, he goes to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. And so being part of the line of David gives us a hint that something special is happening because everybody was concerned about the line of David because that is where the Messiah was going to come from. And so this little nobody, Joseph, from a nobody town of Nazareth goes to another nobody town called Bethlehem. And it says he went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. And so not only are we dealing with nobody Joseph and nobody Mary, but we're dealing with something that would have been quite scandalous in that day, to have someone pregnant who was not married. And this is the situation Mary finds herself in. And so because of the census, they have to travel from Nazareth all the way to Bethlehem, which is actually an incredibly long journey. It's kind of a map of Israel. Uh, Bethlehem is way down near Jerusalem. Uh, Nazareth is uh, uh, way up, up, up north. This would have been a very long, long journey, about 150 kilometers. And in our day, that's nothing because we can hop in our car or our truck or, I mean, you can take a plane after all. But back then, you pretty much had to walk it. And, uh, you know, uh, it's pretty much the same distance as if you had to go from Nelson all the way to Grand Forks. It'd be a little bit further uh, going to Bethlehem, but pretty much. And according to Google Earth, it's about a 30-hour walk. This is a very, very long journey. I mean, just think about today, how far in this world you could get driving for 30 hours or flying for 30 hours. I mean, you can literally get to the other side of the planet. This was a long journey uh, to go from Nazareth all the way to Bethlehem, especially being uh, quite pregnant. We don't know how long uh, she was in her pregnancy when they did this journey, but it seems like she was probably right, right near the end. I mean, try convincing your pregnant wife to do a 30-hour journey, you know, while being pregnant. And, and this is where some of those myths come in. You know, we always have this idea that, you know, somehow, you know, uh, Mary was riding a donkey. And in fact, uh, I just typed in, Mary and Joseph travel to Bethlehem, and every single picture has Mary riding a donkey. And the reality is the text actually doesn't say that. It just says they traveled from Nazareth to Bethlehem. Now, it's possible that she rode a donkey, but probably unlikely since they were quite poor. And we see that after Jesus was born, that they offered the poorest of the poor offering in the temple. Jesus was born into a very poor family. And most likely, they walked 30 hours uh, to Bethlehem in this very, very long journey. And it says, while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. And she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. And, and notice it says firstborn, meaning she had other children. And if you read the gospel stories, you meet some of uh, the other children, Mary and Joseph's children. And significantly, uh, there, uh, one of their child's name is Jude, and another one is named of James. And if you've read your Bible, you know there's a book in the Bible written by James, and a book in the Bible written by Jude. These were uh, the sons of Mary and Joseph, who kind of, uh, you know, thought Jesus was crazy, but after the resurrection, they were very convinced and became followers of him and actually have books written in the Bible. And so, uh, Jesus was born, and it says, she wrapped him in, in, in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room 
available for them. And some translations have the word, there's no room in the inn. And really, it's, it's the same word. It can mean inn, it can mean guest room, it can even mean upper room. It's the same word used when the disciples are going to find a place for the Last Supper. In the, in the upper room, it's the same, same word. They go find a guest room. But there was no room in the guest room, or possibly an inn. And so this little baby was placed in a manger, which was just a feeding trough for animals. And so often in the Christmas story, we, we picture, you know, Jesus being born in a stable or some sort of shelter in some field with nobody around. Um, that this makes for a great manger scenes for sure, but it's probably unlikely it was that. Uh, if you go back in church history, way back to the second century, um, the tradition was that Jesus was born in a cave. And so we see some of the early church fathers talking about Jesus being born in a cave. In, cave. And in fact, in the second century, they, 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 they thought they knew the location. They said, you know, I think we still know where Jesus was born and what cave he was born in. And of course, the, where this cave was, if it was actually the real cave or not, you can go to Bethlehem and they have a church built over that supposed spot. And you can go into this church, and I've been there, and uh, you can go down in the basement into this little spot, and you reach your hand into this hole and down into this other hole, and supposedly you touch the very cave that Jesus was born in. And uh, very possible, uh, we don't know for sure. Um, but funny story about this church, we, we were there, and there was another gal from our church who was there with us. Uh, she's moved away from here now, but um, uh, we went in, and she had a bit of her shoulder ex exposed. And if you've been to some of these churches, you know that's a big no-no. But the priest comes up and says, you whore! You know, why'd you let a whore in here? And I mean, this is what happens when religion becomes more about rules and laws than about actually loving people. <laughs> uh, so we actually had to cover up our shoulders, and then, she, then we could go in and touch the very spot that Jesus was born. But uh, uh, be careful of religion. That's what it does. I mean, it's not, doesn't really, it's not very inviting at all. <laughs> it was not the most inviting place to, to be in. But this is tradition. He was born in a cave, and it's possible that cave was maybe attached to a house because a lot of times people kept their animals in a cave because there's lots of caves in Israel, and then they lived right next door. Uh, a lot of scholars actually think Jesus was born in a common house um, because it was very common in those days to have a sort of lower portion of the house where you brought the animals in at night or the baby animals, and there'd be mangers and feeding troughs. And, and that, that Greek word for the, the guest room or even the upper room uh, can mean that there was just no room in, the, in the, the family living space because there was a census and maybe there were lots of people in the home. And so maybe G, uh, Mary and Joseph had to go kind of in the lower portion where the animals were kept. And, and that's where Jesus was placed in this manger. And so we don't know for sure, um, but uh, we do know for sure, Jesus was placed in a feeding trough, and we do know there was no room in an inn or a guest room of, or upper room of, of that sort. And so it goes on, and in verse 8, it says, there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. And uh, here's just a picture that I took of, and Robin probably be familiar with this too, uh, the, the fields outside of Bethlehem, and maybe in those days it would have looked similar and so there's shepherds out in the fields near Bethlehem. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. And it says, an angel of the Lord appeared to them, 
and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. This right here is very, very significant to the Christmas story, and it's very significant to the whole gospel message and the message of Christianity. Here we have this baby, the Messiah, being born, the, the hope of Israel, the hope of mankind. This baby is born, and who does the message first go out to? Not to Caesar Augustus, not to the religious leaders, not to the Pharisees, not to the people who supposedly had it all together, not to the, the well-off. This message first goes to shepherds. And shepherds in those days wasn't like one of those cute, cozy jobs that you would just always hope your kids would grow up and do. Uh, it was a very low-end job. In fact, scholar Craig Keener says this, that most people of status throughout the empire viewed shepherds as lowly and sometimes as rough, unclean, or even dangerous. And if you recognize that word of unclean, this means that they were unclean to do certain religious things. And I mean, it was just it was like a, a down and out. Those were the, the job. If you couldn't find any other job, that's what you did, was, was a shepherd. It was looked down upon. And yet the message of Jesus first goes to the shepherds. And, uh, and it says here that an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them. Now, the idea of the glory of God was often relegated to the inner area of the temple, the Holy of Holies. And a few weeks ago, we did a whole message about that, understanding that in Jesus' day, uh, you couldn't go into that place where the glory of God was, where the presence of God was. Um, if you were a female, you were definitely out. If you were a male, you were out unless you were a male priest. And if you were a priest, you were out unless you happened to be the high priest. And then you could only go in once a year to experience the very glory of God. And the whole gospel message is Jesus came to destroy all those rules and regulations and sacrifices and laws and barriers between people and between God. And so this is, in essence, the first gospel proclamation the shepherds, the lowest people uh, of the day, the very holy of holies comes to them. The glory of God shines around them because Jesus isn't just reserved for those who have it all together. Jesus came to hang out with tax collectors and sinners and shepherds and, and people like you and me and to shine his glory that we might experience God. And so it says, the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news, that's the gospel, that's the, people would be familiar with the good news of Caesar Augustus, but this, this is a different good news. I bring you good news that will be, cause great joy for all the people, not just Romans, not those, those who follow Caesar, because for the Jewish people, Caesar Augustus was not good news. I mean, they had occupied their territory, and they were hoping to be free, and there were a lot of other people in the Roman Empire, slaves and people who were oppressed and who had been conquered by Caesar Augustus, and this is good news for all people, very good news, the gospel. Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. Again, Caesar Augustus was called Savior, but there's a new Savior, a different kind of Savior, who's not about military might and power and control but one about love. He is the Messiah, the Lord. 
This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And that must have been strange for the shepherds. Because again, this, the, the idea of the Messiah coming and this, this figure, I mean, surely he's going to be born in a palace or the home of a, a religious leader, but a feeding trough? And again, it says manger because that's just more tame, but literally, it was a feeding trough. <laughs> You're going to find this baby in a feeding trough, like, like the lowest spot you would ever find a baby in. But again, the gospel is all upside down from our own thinking. And often we try to, to paint, we want to paint God in the, in the paintbrush of our own trauma and our own desire for power and lust and control, and yet God flips that all upside down and the message goes out to shepherds and Jesus is born in a feeding trough to, to nobody, Mary, and nobody, Joseph, and, and, uh, and this is how the gospel begins. N.T. Wright, scholar N.T. Wright, says, the point that Luke is making is clear. The birth of this little boy is the beginning of a confrontation between the kingdom of God and all its apparent weakness, insignificance, and vulnerability in the kingdoms of this world. And we see that in this text, beginning with Caesar Augustus, Lord, Savior, good news, and then weak little picture Jesus being born and the message going out to shepherds, yet this kingdom would end up, you know, saturating the whole world. So suddenly a great company of heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace to those in whom his favor rests. When the angel had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. And this is not you know, sometimes they're like, well, how'd they find Jesus? It's not like searching Nelson. I mean, these towns are very small in those days. It wouldn't be all that hard to find a, a newborn baby in a manger. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in a manger. When they had seen him, they, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at all the shepherds said to them, but Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. And so again, we see the story, uh, it's saturated in weakness, in smallness, in simpleness, compared to Caesar Augustus. And it's interesting that in those days, when people thought about the Messiah being born and, and how the Messiah would live, it was not all clothed like the Christmas story is clothed. I mean, they thought he would be born into royalty. Surely if the Messiah is coming, he's going to be born into to, you know, the, a significant family. He's definitely going to be born into the, uh, the home of a Pharisee or religious leader or the high priest or something because, I mean, this is the Messiah, but he was not born into royalty. He was born in a family of nobodies. Uh, they thought he would be a powerful, dignified, earthly king. Uh, he would be another Caesar Augustus, but, but uh, you know, he would be, he'd be for the Jewish people. He'd be full of might and power and military power, and, but Jesus comes again born in a manger, and he grows up, and he begins to not hang around with the religious people and support their system. He begins to hang around with tax collectors and sinners. And, and of course, they thought for sure the Messiah would support the religious system of the day, that he, he would be, you know, one-on-one -on -one with the Pharisees and support that whole system. But the reality is Jesus came to actually attack that system. 
and Jesus attacked the religious system with all his might. And, And you see that time and time again, that Jesus came to destroy the religious system. He came to destroy all the barriers that man had erected between people and God and different races and classes of people. He began to pull that all down. And suddenly you see that Jesus, again, he's purposely poking the bear of the religious system. And you can go back to uh, like when Jesus changes water into wine, the very first miracle. I mean, uh, at a wedding, they drank all the wine, and, and surely there were all these empty vessels that were empty because they had drank all the wine. All these empty, empty containers that Jesus could have said, fill those up with water, and we'll change those into wine. But no, he specifically says, I want you to go get the ceremonial pots. Not the empty ones <laughs> that could have been reused, but I mean, he could have done that and it would have been a lot less tame. He would have maybe not poked the religious bear, but Jesus purposely goes to poke the religious bear by saying, I want you to get the ceremonial pots. And they do, and they fill them with water. And these pots are used for cleansing to be pure and, and holy so you'd be ready to go in the temple and, and you, you become clean. And Jesus takes those and he changes that water into wine. I mean, Jesus came to attack the religious system where in the day, everybody thought the Messiah would support it. They thought he would defeat all their enemies, yet Jesus came and said, love your enemies. You know, what good is it to love those who love you? I want you to love even your enemies. And then they thought he would come and crack down on singers, uh, uh, sinners, but he goes and hangs out with them. I mean, this is the Christmas story from the very foundation of the gospel. Jesus isn't born into a powerful family, but a poor family. He isn't born in a, in a hotel or a, you know, a palace. He is born in a manger. The message doesn't go out to religious leaders. It goes out to the simple. That is the, the start of the gospel story. That's how the gospel story continues to grow. And we are to continue today to walk in that same gospel story. There is something about us that always wants to control other people and have power over people. And we want a Messiah that looks like this and But that's not the way of the kingdom. That's not the way of Jesus. And it's not the way the early church did it. I mean, the early church lived the Christmas story. They lived this weakness, this vulnerability. They lived this this loving, the shepherds kind of story. That's how the early church did it. In fact, and I've talked about this before, but uh, Rodney Stark, who is uh, probably one of the most well-known sociologists today, you know, PhD from Berkeley, I was fascinated by how quickly Christianity grew between the resurrection and when, you know, it kind of became legalized in, in Rome when Constantine came in, and it was, for a lot of people, the downfall of Christianity. But, but before it was legalized, it, it spread so quickly. It, just, it was miraculous how quickly it spread. But why did it spread so quickly? It wasn't because of power and control and trying to control the government actually had everything to do with living out the Christmas story in weakness and loving those who were unlovable and caring for the sick and doing miracles. In fact, uh, Rodney Stark, he says this, Christianity served as a revitalization, sorry, a movement that arose in response to the misery, chaos, fear, and brutality of life in the urban Greco-Roman world. And, And we're living in a day because of you know, 2020, that a lot of this is the same. It's where Christianity should be shining. Christianity revitalized life 
in Greco-Roman cities by providing new norms and new kinds of social relationships able to cope with many urgent problems. To cities filled with the homeless and impoverished, Christianity offered charity as well as hope. To cities filled with newcomers and strangers, Christianity offered an immediate basis for attachment. To cities filled with orphans and widows, Christianity provided a new and expanded sense of family. To cities torn by violent ethnic strife, Christianity offered a new basis for social solidarity. And to cities faced with epidemics, fire, and earthquakes, Christianity offered effective nursing services. For what they brought was not simply an urban movement, but a new culture capable of making life in Greco-Roman cities more tolerable. In other words, they lived the gospel message, which is primarily over and over, as Jesus said, to love one another. And that is the Christmas story. It is a message for the weak. It is the, the message for the small. It is a message for the broken. And, and we're all that. And so, uh, in the end, I mean, we look at Caesar Augustus, who in that day was the most well-known name in the universe. <laughs> and then there's Jesus, whom nobody knew when he was born. But 2,000 years later, I tell you, People may know who Caesar Augustus is, but they're not worshiping him. But all around the world today, people are celebrating Jesus. Caesar tried to conquer the world through military might. Jesus conquers the world through love. And that is the upside-down kingdom. That is the Christmas story. And our call is to follow in the footsteps of that Christmas story. So, Father, I pray you would keep our hearts soft towards others around us. And I ask that you would keep us uh, just the ability to love, God, uh, just those who are broken and hurting, maybe even ourselves in this time, God, uh, the shepherds, the, the Mary and Josephs. And I thank you that you have conquered this world and you are moving in this world through your power of love. And God, I ask that you would help us to maintain that Christmas story where we gift others with peace and joy and goodness and your love. In Jesus' name, amen.